Plot twists. We are obsessed with them. In film, life and love, they turn up everywhere. It's that moment in a story that takes you in an unexpected direction. I'm Tom, super fan of cinema, sport, comedy, and I'm part of the old impression. And throughout this series, brought to you by Now and Sky, I'll be interviewing TV and film stars, asking them all about the plot twist moments that define their lives and careers. So expect the unexpected, and hopefully some behind-the-scenes gems you've never heard before. Expect spoilers. My guest this week is a Death Eater. I think he was the former master of Dobby, the house elf. And of course, he was father to Draco. It is the one and only Lucius Malfoy, or, or I should say Jason Isaacs, a name that many of you will know, even more of you will recognise for his roles on the big and small screen. Jason's been acting for over 35 years, but he's probably best known for playing Lucius in those Harry Potter films, a role that he has embraced, he continues to lean into, and it got me thinking it's an interesting one because there were many great actors on that franchise, many of whom had small screen time, but they are best known for their appearances as those characters. It is obviously testament to the size of Harry Potter and its fandom. But Jason is very much engaged with his audience. And every now and again, he will do a throwback to a particular memory on set, which fans just seem to adore. Before Harry Potter, he was starring in big Hollywood titles already. But probably The Patriot in 2000, that was where it took it to a next level, opposite Mel Gibson, Heath Ledger, and then Captain Hook and Peter Pan a few years later. He likes a few villainous roles, and he likes to challenge himself. Even up to the present day, a film like Mass, a Sky original film, it's looking at two sets of parents dealing with the guilt and trauma of a high school shooting. Incredibly powerful and poignant, and the acting is just nothing short of superb. And talking of Hollywood, he is starring in a new series called Archie on ITVX, playing the role of Cary Grant, the true story of Cary Grant, the leading man in the golden age of Hollywood, who was born into poverty in Bristol in 1904. And this extraordinary journey into acting and superstardom, but behind closed doors, it was a very different story. In fact, Cary almost had a, a double life. And that's what the series explores so uniquely. So plenty to ask, Jason. I was genuinely intrigued to delve into the life of Cary Grant and obviously talk about some plot twists. And he was immediately chatty off the bat. In fact, he spotted the poster behind me of Muhammad Ali and couldn't help but share a story. And that's where we started. I was at a thing with Muhammad Ali five million years ago when we were promoting The Patriot in Las Vegas. There used to be a thing called Show West where every single video store owner in America gathered this giant stadium and then the studios wheeled out all their biggest stars to say, please put our videos in the front of your shop or something. And uh, Mel Gibson wasn't available. No one knew who the hell I was. I still wouldn't. And I was up on stage with Schwarzenegger and Stallone and Bruce Willis and, and Muhammad Ali because oh they were making goodness. Ali and Will Smith. And at the end of the little presentation, or the big presentation, um, everybody lined up to shake his hand and speak to him. And, I, you know, he was pretty infirm by mm. that stage. And I thought, and I stood in line for a minute, and I thought, you know what, I'm not going to do it. Let's, let, let's let him get out of here and go back to his hotel and have some rest. And then afterwards, I felt stupid because, A, I didn't get to shake Muhammad Ali's hand, and, B, someone who knew him said he loves that. That's his, that's his favourite yeah, thing to do. He'd much rather yeah. be here meeting stars. Anyway, I was that close. I was a jab away from him. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. My my 
Life is full of stories like that. My, my <laughs> daughter, Ruby, who's now 18 and uh, off at college, but she used to say, uh, instead of reading me a story, she'd go, tell me a story, Dad, from your life. So I'd tell her a story from my life uh, every night. And at one point after months, she went, Dad, why are you such a loser in all your stories? <laughs> and I went, they're the only stories worth telling, aren't they? Well, you can't tell stories about which, you, you know, you're a winner or something goes great. She goes, why not? And I went, because that's just naff it's embarrassing and then frankly i haven't got many of those i've got a lot of losers stories the other one is stevie wonder i was in the uh a hotel in los angeles and stevie wonder got in and pressed the button because they had braille things there and nobody came in with him and i thought i've got to say something but you know what do you first of all do i call him mr wonder is it stevie <laughs> what do i say and uh and then what do i say i love you i think you're you know you're my playlist he doesn't hear that a thousand times a day that's the thing is how do you be um, original what, in that moment what's the point and you know why am i trying to think of something clever or funny to say to him by the time i'd had those thoughts we'd gone three floors and i realized i hadn't breathed and i wasn't sure he knew i was there oh, behind no. him. <laughs> i just held my breath till he got out of the lift and that's as close as i got to a conversation with stevie White. that's amazing it is. It's difficult, though, isn't it? Because you're in that situation. You think look, they've heard this a thousand times before. How do you how do you try and be original? Say something that they're going to remember. But it's yeah. no one ever will remember. The, th the thing I hate is when people can't come up and they say, "I don't mean to interrupt." And when I'm in a really wanky mood, which is very rarely, I don't get grumpy with members <laughs> of the public, just my family. I go, "Well, you do, but that's okay." Yeah. And why? Why do I say that? It's pathetic. <laughs> um, but yeah, people just come up and go, they, they don't want to talk to me about me, generally. They want to tell me they're, they're a big fan of something. And it's always the case that the thing they're a fan of is the writing of the thing that I was in. And I'll take all the credit. I'm not proud. Oh, you should take some credit. Jason, it's uh, an absolute joy to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's, uh, it's uh, well, I say it's a pleasure. I don't know. We'll find out. Yeah, we? we will. We will. We've got to talk about some plot twists in your story. That's what the nature of this is the nature of the podcast also talk about Archie. I watched uh, three episodes last night. I, was only, I thought I watched one. It was late. And I ended up watching three because right. I got really quite into it, which is, a, I guess, that is a compliment in itself. So much in that I, I'm keen to unfold. Um, but I wanted to start with reflection. Um, you've done so much in your career. You Here you are playing this Hollywood icon. I'm old. You're saying I'm old. No, but you've done, you've, you've, you've done some incredible uh, work. I've been lucky. I've worked. I mean, I... I've done a lot of dross and I've done uh, quite a lot of media, mediocre things. I've done a few pretty good things. And that's, a, you know, an average. I've been working as an actor since 1988 for 35 years. And if, if one in five is worth remembering, that's a, a high proportion. Well, I, I'm going to give you some credit. I mean, you've got this role in one of the biggest franchises in cinema history. I recently watched again Mass. I just thought you were phenomenal in, in that. You've even been on stage and, and been a little bit risky with Daniel Craig in the past. You know, you've got a mixed, uh, mixed roles there. Funny you should pick them out. I mean, the thing to pick out about the play with Daniel Craig is it's the best play written in the English language for hundreds of years. It, it won the Pulitzer Prize and everything else, and everybody who saw it was, I mean, it's a bit lofty and pretentious, but hey, why not? was profoundly affected by mm. everybody. It was, it was the greatest experience I've ever had in the theatre, regardless of the fact that I was in the play. Uh, it was for, for the audiences for whom it was written, because uh, sometimes you do plays and the wrong audience comes to see it. You're either preaching to the converted or people are untouched. But the very people who came to see plays at the National Theatre were the people who needed to have their minds changed about what was going on outside those walls. Um, so yeah, you picked out a few a few of the very good ones. Mass won a bunch of awards justifiably because I thought it was about, it was not only completely engaging, that's the bare minimum you need to do with any stories, engage people and when it finishes, have them think, God, I'd like to watch another film soon. But it also dealt with one of the most important things we can have in the modern world is compassion. Mm. 
and to remind us that if we if we're carrying hatred and resentment we're poisoning ourselves you know it's a it's a film celebrating the power of forgiveness and about how many things can you say that that it does it well and makes you cry and makes you move but at the end you feel uplifted and kind of believe in the possibility of a, a better world for us personally if we if we learn to have compassion and you know most things you're lucky if you can distract people from now absolutely two hours. the master's a special one do you reflect on those projects you know you talk about the the impact it can have on the audience and yourself because we, we look ahead at the next thing what are you doing what's coming up but actually taking a look back and thinking wow i did do that that's quite that's quite special oh jesus no i never look back and go wow i did anything that most of the time so there's this there's a misconception often amongst not just members of the public members of my family that one of the things that acting is about is the result you know or, or the fact that you end up going on a red carpet or getting a nice table in a restaurant or, or, or you know free jacket in the post or something and um you know acting for me is about the all about the process i just love doing it and many of the things i've thought were fabulous nobody saw some of the things i thought were terrible everybody saw um and i learned a long time ago to just enjoy the journey there is no destination so uh i never look back and think i'm i was that was good i was part of it i just the only time i'm reminded of it is when First of all, when you're doing press, obviously, but when people come up to you and want to talk about it, so when people come up and say, you know, after Angels America, for instance, the play I did with Daniel and, and other wonderful actors, um, it was about AIDS. It's a, you know, it was about many things, about mm. politics. It was about life and love. But uh, my character who was a really uh, militant activist on behalf of the queer community. Actually, left his partner when he got AIDS. Seemed incomprehensible to me, but it turns out lots of people do that. They just can't cope. And so many people have come to me over the years and wanted to talk about the fact that when the person they loved most in all the world was dying of cancer, they they ran away. And that happened a lot. And so similarly with mass, people who've endured unimaginable mm. tragedies, lots of them, uh, are inspired by its message of forgiveness uh, and want to tell me want to tell me either how it helped them forgive or that they had done the same thing and they'd found a, a new life through it. I never reflect, but other people uh, you know, the Harry Potter thing lives on forever because people want to come up and they, they don't really want to talk to me about it. They just want to let me know that when they were made them lonely feel. or suicidal or felt, you know, there was nowhere for them in the world, those stories gave them comfort. Um, I'm, I am actually, I'm embarrassed to say, I know you would be slightly funny about it, but I'm always looking forward because looking back is just a, a waste of time. I tell you, the only place I look back, my phone brings me up montages and memories of my kids who are now 18 and 21. Well, there you go. That's and, special. Barely a day goes by when I'm not sobbing in the middle of the night. When everyone else has gone to bed, looking at my phone, going, switch it off. They're not that age anymore. They're, you know, <laughs> you're not cuddling with them stories. Why is this phone doing this evil thing to me? But um, for work, it's always forward. We'll come back to the process because I'm, in, I'm intrigued to know about what attracts you to certain roles. But let's go to the first plot twist. It is uh, we, we look at it as a sort of a defining moment to our own story, which changes our... Right. our narrative what for you jason would be that ultimate plot twist uh moving from liverpool to london it was a massive thing in my life it defined me in many ways you know i lived in this little community in liverpool and went to the school and the youth club and you know knew everybody who was in my world and i moved to this giant place where everybody spoke differently and that, weirdly i'd had elocution lessons at school in in the this state school in Liverpool, we were all in assembly going, the rain in Spain falls mainly on the plane. Well, like an aeroplane. You know? <laughs> um, but I got to London where I thought I had no accent and everybody took the piss out of me. Everybody at school was laughing at me. 
and I had a Liverpool accent for about eight seconds. And, and I, I learned to code switch, which may well be a direct line to what I'm doing now. You know, I, I had a different accent completely. And then I had local friends who didn't go to the slightly posher school, although it, was a, it, was a, it wasn't a fee-paying school, but it wasn't the local state school. I had lots of local friends, many of whom end up leaving school at 16. I had a different accent with them. And I became a, a one of the things I did as many hobbies I splashed around trying to find a way to fit in somewhere. I was a pro skateboarder and I skateboarded under the South Bank. Oh wow. And I had a different and I had a different accent and character, really, for yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the big plot twist for me was moving and not feeling like there was anywhere I fitted in and, and then learning to blend like a chameleon into whatever group of people I was with. That would make sense then why you went into acting, maybe. I th yeah, part. Yeah, I think it probably does. Uh, it certainly gave me some skills, like uh, literally accent skills and mimicry and stuff. But I went to university. The the, the next big, I guess, change, you know, chapter heading. Uh, I went to university and left uh, the world that I lived in in, in northwest London, and suddenly introduced to lots of people from all the, you know, the expensive private and public schools, and a whole, you know. Double-barreled world of people <laughs> who spoke like uh, plummy characters I'd only ever seen uh, on telly and sketches, and knew each other, and had such a comfort and ease with their money and entitlement and history in this country. And and I uh, was so far out of the world I belonged in that again, within about five seconds, unconsciously, I sounded like them, or at least I tried to sound like them. And I tried to dress like them. I went to second-hand shops in Bristol, tried to get. They all seemed to have the same. The men had the same beige cords and pink and white stripy shirts, and the women all wore pearls. And my, I didn't know what the fuck was going. On. Sorry, did we swear? No, you can do it. Yeah. I, I didn't know what the fuck planet I had landed on, and uh, so I tried to ease my way in with drink and drugs and a change of accent. But a couple of weeks in, I was in the student union building, fortified by subsidised alcohol, and uh, there was a notice saying, "Can you do a Northern accent audition?" The one thing I knew I could do authentically, because nothing was authentic that was left. Was doing northern accent and i went into an audition for a play uh, which i'd never done before and i was cast in this play and i found my world i found a, a room i could go to every day a uh, rehearsal room where it didn't matter where you came from what your accent was what your parents did what your background was um and you were having real discussions about what makes you sad happy jealous lonely angry you know and pulling in stories from your life and other people's lives and it felt so much more uh, powerful and fun and mm. engaging and exciting than anything I'd ever done. And, you know, being red-blooded male at that age, you know, there was ready-made partnership on offer there. Pretty much every play I ever did, I slept with somebody going on or they slept with me. <laughs> and uh, so it just seemed to tick every single box. It was just there was a group of people doing something that felt exciting, talking about who we really are in the world, no kind of trivial talk, and taking their clothes off. It was just, you know, it's an <laughs> ideal combo. Because you studied law, didn't you? So that was... was that I did I'm... study law, and I did quite a lot of studying for the first two years. And then I knew I was going to drama school. And right. then I, I barely made an appearance in the law faculty at all. How did your family fact, feel about out, it? I, well, they had a lawyer. My elder brother uh, did law, and the, el the one above that had become a doctor. So and, you know, they ticked those kind of very traditional boxes. For My dad left school at 15, you know, my and my, my mum too. So... You know, the, we are the first generation to go to university. They had a couple of professionals. And they, by the time I said I was going to drama school, they'd seen me in like 30 plays. I barely kept my clothes on. 
you know, the, the fact that I was going to give it some kind of formal, in their world, that was a formal training of some kind, as if there was a, a proper career ladder for actors. And then I guess in my head, maybe in theirs, there was always the thought, well, this was an indulgence for a few years, and then I would do something proper, you know, do an actual job. And I never have. Lucky your brothers uh, did it before you, eh? <laughs> it is, and they weren't that happy. The one who was a lawyer was not really enjoying law that much. And, I mean, I, I'm not sure I was very stoppable. You know, when I went to drama school, there was 300 quid a year. There was an inner London educational authority that Margaret Thatcher disbanded. So, and I worked every weekend. I've always worked a lot, and I actually could pay my way. So it wasn't like they could have said no, mm. but they were nice and they supported me. You know? That's what you need. That's what you need. I was just going to ask, um, who are your icons? Who are your heroes at that point in your life? Well, there wasn't anybody, certainly in the world of art. I mean, one of the reasons I was so freaky to the idea of going to drama school or thinking I might ever try and make a living doing something so ridiculous was uh, I've just seemed odd to me because I didn't know anyone who did things like that for a hobby. I didn't know anyone who played an instrument. So how did it feel when you, you received the letter to say you, you have a place at drama school? Because the story I've got to go is that basically you stumbled into an open audition at the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama in London and didn't quite see it all coming. I think if you'd asked me, I would have assumed that my letter would be kept in the attic in a trunk or something. And my grandchildren would go, did you know, granddad got into drama school. But I didn't get a letter. Uh, a very tall, very posh woman called Jane Cowell, this wonderful voice coach, came out and stood opposite me. And she said, we'd very much like to offer you a place in September. And I just kind of stuttered and, and, and I just stared at her. And she went... Then she suddenly went bright red and she went, I hope you're not fucking us around, young man. You know, thousands of people apply for these spaces. And I was panicked. And I went, no, 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 thanks very much. I always shot up in a couple of <laughs> octaves. And I went, no, 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 thanks. I'd love it. It'd be great. Amazing. I'm just so taken aback. And I remember so vividly walking up the street in Swiss Cottage, thinking to myself, did I just decide the course of the rest of my life because it's what I want to do? Or because a posh lady said, fuck in my face. And, and I still don't know. <laughs> Well, she sealed your fate, that's for sure. She did. These are the sliding doors moments. Exactly. Where, you know, you can exactly. go one way or the other. Yeah, it's amazing when you look back. Let's talk about the series then. It's, it's out today, isn't it, Archie, on ITVX? It is on out. now. My yes. dad keeps telling me what time it's on. I go, Dad, it's on streaming. It's yeah. on any time you click. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but it's out um, now. You've been very quick to say you're not playing Cary Grant. You're playing the man behind Cary, mm. Archibald Leach. Well, he wasn't Cary Grant. That's the thing. Yes. When people knew this was being made, well, when I first heard it was being made, I thought, you've got to be insane. Any actor who takes this job on is just, you might as well show up on the knife and stick it in your throat yourself. Um, but then I read the scripts and then I, you know, I met Jeff and in an odd reversal, normally you go and audition for things and, and you hope that they offer you the job. But I'd been offered the job and I just thought, no, that's, you've got to be an idiot to do this. And then I read it and I was intrigued and I went to meet him and he was just lovely and open and collaborative and so knowledgeable about everything in Carrie's life. And then I read the biographies and I thought, wait, he was nothing like that. In mm. fact, many of the people who knew him well and the biographers who'd met him said you've never met anybody who's the more polar opposite of what he was known for in public. And I thought, oh, okay. Well, whatever the opposite of suave and cool is, I can definitely play that. And, uh, <laughs> you know, unmanly and, and a lady killer. So he was very damaged. He was a very damaged, neurotic, anxious, scarred, angry, troubled person. Um, who could also be charming and funny and wonderful. Mm. That's not that surprising. We all know about the tears of a clown. And so the more I had learned about him, the more I thought, well, that's a playable part. That, that's, a, that's a human being. I recognize that human being. I would never try and play 
the man who was so brilliant in all those you know, light comedies and all the Hitchcock films and everything, uh, and not only the way he acted, he was staggeringly beautiful. Mm. Diane Cannon, I spent a lot of time talking to Diane Cannon, who was amazingly generous and trusting and shocking with the things she told me about their marriage. Uh, but she said, you have to understand, honey, we walk into a room and everybody wanted him. I mean, <laughs> men and women. And designers, the clothes would hang off him. And I go, Diane, could you just stop? This isn't really very helpful to me. <laughs> Tell me something I can play. But, you know, I was so scared of doing it and knowing there'd be a billion people go, well, he's no Cary Grant. Uh, but the more I learned about him, the more I knew that he knew he was no Cary Grant either. And the people who got in relationships with him were shocked by how obsessed he became over them, how crushed he was when they rejected him, as they did eventually, you know, four of his five wives and many others. And uh, just how much in pain he was all the time and how, how all the different lengths he went to to try and solve it. But in the end, how much the people around him paid more than he did for this terrible background. Watching it is quite extraordinary because I get a sense in life that we're all acting in, in some variation and some dial up more than others. Sure, to some degree. To some degree, to some degree. Yeah. But some people we do know that will dial it up and you know they're playing this facade, this character. But I just thought, oh my God, that must have been exhausting to put on well, this front. Yeah, and... I mean, it, it's the great dramatic irony and the reason why Jeff Pope was right to want to make a series about it. The guy who created a, a character that the entire world fell in love with who needed, who wanted love from other people, validation from other people, because he didn't, not only did not get any, he was abandoned and abused mm. and, you know, uh, neglected in every way and starving. He learned to make people love him, to be whoever they needed him to be. And he did it so well and directed his energy so well at making it as much as possible. He got the whole world loving him. I mean, hundreds of millions of people worshipped this guy for 30 years. He was the biggest star on the planet. And all it did was make that hole bigger inside him made him feel even less lovable, even more abandoned. So it's, it's a great irony uh, that only when he gave that up, became a dad, had, had a child and started to give love instead of seek love, instead of make people love him, make someone else feel loved, did he begin to heal in any way? And that's, that's a journey that might be turned up to 11, but it's something that I think many people will recognize. I certainly did as a dad. You know, I, I wasn't like, I wasn't as extreme as him. I didn't have the same childhood as him. But I know that when my first daughter arrived, I, there was a kind of relief. Some part of me went, finally, finally, I belong somewhere. There's somewhere I need to be and ought to be. And someone else is more important than me. I guess it's a redirected purpose, maybe. Maybe. Yeah. Oh, um, I don't know what his purpose was before that. Yeah, we've well, that's the thing. Maybe he everything. didn't know. He took acid hundreds yeah. of times. But we can't document his whole life. But he did a billion things to try and feel better. And none of them made him feel better. He just was, continued to feel worse. I was thinking just for younger listeners, who, who's the equivalent in today's society, not in terms of the background and the, the facade, but in terms of stature in, in the acting world? Well, I mean, it's a really good question because most young people haven't got a clue who he, who he is. And even when I thought about doing this, I said, why, uh, Jeff, why are, we, why are we talking about the life of Cary Grant where most people who loved him, you know, and admired him are, are, won't be watching? And... The fact is that there's millions of people like him. I mean, mm. they, you know, there are people with hundreds of millions of followers on every social media platform, and they have those followers feel less than. In fact, I could do it too. But just any of the glossy, shiny lives that beam out of us from any of our devices make us feel like other people have got the perfect life and we don't. And uh, so there's true. a disease. So true. You know, a pandemic of people feeling worthless or less than their, their idols. So there's a billion Cary Grants. 
but one of the it's look this isn't a message it's a four-hour piece of entertainment but the the best messages are disguised and delivered in great drama which is never to believe that anyone's life is as shiny as it looks mm. i've got friends who are household names uh who have really got terrible trouble behind closed doors i mean really families ripped apart and heartbreak everywhere and you would never know it to read the papers and magazines and uh he was that you know times times 20 but if you ask who today who the today's figures are who do that we could start now and list them for hours yeah very true very true which is why we love it why not we but you know the public love it when the tabloids expose hey this couple is all perfect turns out she was cheating or he's you mm. know he's on drugs or they're breaking up now and you go phew, some part of us all of us go oh phew someone's life isn't perfect but the, the rest of them all look great I saw um I saw a clip with Sinatra. I think he was seventy one. I think he where he won an honorary mm -hmm. Oscar. Oh, and he's God, on, there's he's, a whole story behind that clip. Yeah, but he looked very awkward. I mean, Sinatra's his usual Oof. sort of jokey, you know, debonair. Yeah, yeah. But it's Karen funny you pick that up. Most people don't pick it up. He um he wouldn't accept any awards. He, when I started doing this, I thought, okay, well let's have a look at some of the interviews. Let's see who he is candidly. I know he's not the person in the films, obviously, because he spoke with very, very similar speech patterns all the time, and that's why he was so easy prey for mimics. But I couldn't find an interview, and then I went start to panic, and I asked people, you know, who have access to BBC archives and ITV archives, and American archives. He didn't do it. He didn't want the public to know who he was. He was frightened of dropping his guard and being caught off guard, and they'd see what he actually was and that how much of an avatar Cary Grant was as a creation. And uh, I finally found, uh, it's like cul-de-sac, I finally did find someone who had illicitly recorded an interview with him in the last year of his life. The guy had gone to the university radio station to have a conversation with him on the phone, and his friend had recorded it against Cary Grant's will. Cary Grant came on the mic and said, you're not recording this, way." And he said, well, I was going to. No, don't. Very firm before he starts being much nicer. And that interview is the one I based the voice on all the way through. Oh, but, wow, okay. Yeah, but what I was going to say is Jennifer told me, his, his daughter, who was, again, incredibly generous, sharing her very personal stories, that he was terrified of speaking in public. He hated speaking in public. So he turned down awards, and other people said this too, for decades, all kinds of awards, if he had to make a speech. So he accepted AFI honours or Kennedy Centre honours, I can't remember which ones, but, but if he didn't have to make a speech. Finally, he was bullied by Gregory Peck, his friend, into accepting an honorary Oscar. And that week somebody stepped forward and said, I'm pregnant with Cary Grant's uh, illegitimate baby. And he just, oh, no, I knew it was going to happen. And uh, he, he wanted to pull out of the Oscars. And his ex-best mate, Howard Hughes, went, no, mate, you've got to show yourself in public. If you don't show yourself, you never show yourself in public again. He flew him to Las Vegas to persuade him to have a chat with him, put him in a hotel room and said, listen, you've got to be seen in public. You cannot hide away because you'll never appear again. The irony being, at that stage, Howard Hughes wouldn't go in the room with him, was talking from the room next door. <laughs> and so he phoned Grace Kelly, who was going to present to him, and he said, Grace, don't, don't come. There's a scandal around me. Just don't, I just don't think you should be involved. And Frank Sinatra stepped in. So when Frank Sinatra is up there joshing with him about yeah. his relationships with women, he's terrified Frank Sinatra's going to mention the stuff that's in the papers that week. He'd rehearsed the speech, ah, see. but okay. he did not okay. want to go off piste. And if you watch that, as you say, that 30 seconds of banter before he goes into the prepared speech, which is a beautiful speech he makes, um, he's really panicking. Yeah. And uh, that totally makes sense. Totally yeah, there's makes a whole sense. story behind that. Interesting. We'll, we'll come back to a little bit more of that because I, I could go on for hours talking about this. Um, but talk to me about a plot twist person. So this is 
somebody in your life who unexpectedly has been some form of inspiration. Is there anyone, I imagine there's been quite a few, is there anyone that would oh my stand God. out? I mean, there's my mum. My mum was a very difficult woman. I argued and fought with her my whole, my whole life. She was very damaged from childhood, a little bit like Gary Grant. She, had, she was abused when she was a child. She never got treatment or help and stuff. And she was a great mum uh, in many ways for me and my three brothers. But she was very troubling and troubled. And there was a lot of shouting and screaming in my house, a lot. And uh, But she never partly I think because she felt such a victim and was such a victim when she was a child she was of service all of her life she did Samaritans in Liverpool you're not meant to bring people back to the house we had people from Samaritans at our dinner table all the time uh, she campaigned when Jews weren't allowed out of Russia she smuggled people out she sent local housewives oh, wow. in with medicine and with all kinds of secret stuff she got banned from many Eastern European countries and from uh, demonstrating in British Parliament we were our phones were tapped by the KGB uh, for a while. People were following us outside the house. Yeah. But even when she was old, she was organizing pickups and charity drives and stuff. She never uh, she never forgot. In fact, she thought all the time uh, that she had a privileged life and, and the, uh, the responsibility of privilege was service. And that, I, you know, I ignored it through, I mean, I not only ignored it, I shut her up when I was a teenager because she would try and tell us about stuff she was doing during the day. I find myself doing that to my kids too when they were younger to try and get them to understand and to be of service and to volunteer. And I, I wish I could turn the clock back and make her alive again and be a teenager and listen to her uh, and congratulate her and, and uh, tell her how proud I was of what she was doing. But in my when I started to get a little bit well-known and have a profile, and it felt embarrassing. And I, I know people in the world who do good things, things of substance, who make a difference to other people's lives. And they're acting felt at least apart from occasionally when when the stories have real value such a self-serving and narcissistic thing um i began to get opportunities to use my profile to raise money or awareness or, or even just bring comfort to kids in hospitals and i jump i have jumped at many many of those things it's not because i'm a good person because i get it now it made her feel better and i and so i do stuff i have done stuff uh, as often as i'm asked uh, for the Red Cross and for refugees and for Great Ormond mm, Street and for yes. Curie and, and various things. And it's not not because I'm a, a saint. I, I like I'm I'm instinctively extremely selfish. Uh, I don't like doing exercise either, but I know I feel better after exercise. And I know whenever I can be of service, I know it came from her and I know how much easier I sleep. Like a friend of mine, um, Ben Miller, the fantastic actor, mm. one he said to me, you know, you want self-esteem? Do something esteemable. And, uh, and I got that from my mum. Appreciate you sharing that. I like that a lot. Now, a lot of people will ask you about previous roles, and I like. I well, like I, I try two weeks ago, I couldn't talk to you about them. It's been very well, strange doing publicity for the last. Uh, well, the pictures were out though, weren't they? There were images of you as no, as but the Carrie strike. Ball. I couldn't oh, talk course, about. Yes, couldn't talk yes. about any previous things I've done for studios, and it was odd when people started asking. And I go, I'm afraid I can't acknowledge that film even exists, and they go, really? But now we can talk about it. Okay, well. Very quickly on Harry Potter, everyone will come back to that because obviously of what it is. And, sure. But just a couple of quick. Because it's still alive in the world today, and well, working its magic yes, on it new is. generations. Yeah. It's not. It's not a hit from the past. I. I meet. I like, two weeks ago, I was in Belgium meeting Harry Potter fans, and they were. Uh, you know, not only do they, do they love it, is it powerful for them and fun? There's many people for whom it's more than that. It's actually oh, yeah. something, really, a, a life raft in some very choppy seas. A, a true comfort. 
Um, but I want to ask, is it true that you actually have another credit beyond Lucius Malfoy and that you are, there's a voice, I'm the voice credit? Of, yeah, I'm the voice of the basilisk. Well, I think I was in doing uh, what's called ADR, or Automated Dialogue Replacement. When, when you record films, sometimes there's a creak or a noise or something where it sounds a bit echoey. You go back in, you put your voice on again. Won't happen anymore after AI now, but nonetheless, that's what uh, we've been doing up till now. And I was in there and I was probably mucking about on the microphone doing silly voices <laughs> while they said it. And Chris Columbus goes, you're, you're good at voices, you do accents and stuff. Yeah. He goes, how about a snake? I'm like, I don't, I don't know any snakes. So I'm not quite sure how they talk. <laughs> and he goes, no, like the basilisk. And I went, I, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Lucius Malfoy, is it a plot twist? Am I the basilisk? No, no, no. Just like do the voice. So I did some voices and they added an echo and took it down a few octaves. And yeah, I'm the basilisk too. <laughs> yeah, so the voices you hear in the Chamber of Secrets on the walls where Harry's getting yeah, clouded, if yeah, you yeah. will. That, that is... always, always struck me as... I mean, the thing about Harry Potter is <clears throat> people have often asked, why is it so successful? Why is it still such a powerful story for people, uh, you know, for generations around the world? Not just children, adults too. And I've been around my uh, fabulous colleagues and I've heard them wax lyrical about why, and it's all bollocks. If they knew, if anybody knew why this story worked, they'd be able to reproduce it and they just can't. It's, it's an English boarding school story with some magic thrown in, but it's not. It's, it's something that is infinitely Got more on. than that, and no one has any idea why. Stella, stellar casting as well, and I wanted to quickly ask you about yeah. the, the energy on set. When you're with Ray Fiennes, and he's as the Dark Lord, are there mannerisms, anything that he does to sort of increase that state of fear? Is there anything that you notice that kind of makes you more uncomfortable? You know what's weird? I, I've worked, I did, I've done a couple of films. Where I did End of the Affair with Rafe and, and we're the same age. I mean, you know, our lives have overlapped. Where any actor of roughly the same age as me, you've overlapped and you either have one person in common or you work together. Uh, so I knew. But when he was Voldemort, when he was covering all that stuff, he'd be wafting around in that green dress that he wore, that caftan that he floated around the set in. And there was some part of him that was always half in character. He would chat about whatever's going on. But there was some, you know, it's a weird thing, acting. People think that you're pretending, which you are, and that it's pretentious to, you know, to talk about method. or. But you're always halfway in. You're trying to imagine you are this person. And particularly on Harry Potter, where you'd sit around your trailer all day and then you've got to hit the ground running and do your five minutes and you know it's going to end up in the film and you want to make it good because there's dozens of other phenomenal actors chewing up the scenery you're always somewhere a little imaginatively you're halfway in and he was halfway he certainly was halfway into Voldemort that's for sure yeah I can I can I think and Tom he was Hardy. enjoying torturing people he was enjoying the <laughs> status of torturing people playing the ultimate evil character yeah, I remember Tom Hardy who said that when he saw Christian Bale for the first time, because he'd been cast as Bane in The Dark Knight mm. Rises, he thought, oh, yeah, I could take you. Just, just like... <laughs> but then he well, said, he when, but then when Christian put on the suits, he said he, there was this sort of different, he had this different aura and energy about him. So, Well, yeah. that's true, but it's also Tom, who is a wonderful actor, wanting to be a bit like Bane, and Bane needed to be a little bit scared of Batman. So, you know, uh, Lucius Malfoy has much lower status than Voldemort. Odd when he's talked about, uh, he's spoken about as a villain because he doesn't achieve anything. He doesn't manage to kill anyone. Doesn't, Harry's not scared of him. No one's really scared of him. Draco's a bit scared of him. And even in the end, Draco rebels against him. Um, and his wife and son leave the battlefield, leave him there, and he's kind of abandoned. Um, but certainly when Voldemort comes back, he rejects him completely. And then the last film, breaks my wand in half at my table in my house, which I always thought was being publicly castrated. Mm. And so 
doesn't really get any status, Lucius Malfoy. He's grabbing for it all the time, but his, his desperation is so repulsive that Voldemort sees right through it. Are you attracted to those kind of roles? Because, I mean, a lot of the bigger titles like like that, they, there is a sort of a bit of an evil instinct, perhaps. Well, I'm attracted to really well-written parts because, uh, selfishly, I look better. So uh, I've been offered <laughs> lots of two-dimensional villains in my life that I don't do. Lucius Malfoy, for instance, is a racist. Doesn't believe mm. in mixing blood. You don't. You know. You didn't need to look too far to see someone spouting pretty much verbatim what Lucy Malfoy spouted in the White House for four years previously. You know, he's trying to make Hogwarts great again. He just was looking back to a time when people like he ruled the world, and the status of rich people like him was respected more than it is now. Um, the guy in the Patriot, who was pretty evil, was trying to win the war, and so he kills all his prisoners, as many people have done in many wars. He's got a dad who squandered his inheritance he's got nothing to return to england for and so lots of those minor aristocrats fought in the war of independence knowing that when they won they would be claiming that land in in uh in america and they lost but so if it's believable the audience will hate you and be scared of you because so i'm not attracted to those parts i'm attracted to any part that's a good part often the hero is mm. bland and in big movies uh, the best part is almost always the villain the hero has to be kind of vanilla and and anyway, it's going to be Tom Cruise or one of you know four or five other people. But the next best part, and the one that you can really chew the scenery for, is the villain, if they're well-written enough. That was ruined by Alan, God bless him, by stealing Robin Hood off Kevin Costner and stealing Die Hard off Bruce Willis. And then this missive went out. Don't ever let these English bastards come over and steal the movie <laughs> for American heroes. So I thought it was a real joy to make The Patriot after that, when Mel Gibson, who is such a good storyteller, understood, and Roland Emmerich, who directed, understood that if the villain isn't powerful and the hero's not scared of him, you don't have a story. So I come on screen, the patron, and kill Mel Gibson's kids, and he doesn't do anything. And he's, when we have a sword fight, I'm a better fighter than him. And you don't get that very often in the films. So it's a long answer, but no, I'm not drawn to evil characters. I'm drawn to three-dimensional characters. It just so happens they have different uh, ethics and occupy a different moral universe from us. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. I mean, but you, you have, have to, to believe them. Oh, of if course. you don't believe them, yeah. you don't, you're not scared of them all and you don't hate them. Well, I think you did, did you do Sweet November after uh, The Patriots. I mean, it shows, you know, a very different. I did. Kind then of... I did a play about, I did, a, <laughs> I did a play about Northern Ireland as they were negotiating the Stormont Peace Treaty mm. uh, at the Royal Court. And uh, so I was just remembering what happened after that because I, I did a play and it ends with a long silence. Um, it's set in the 70s, but you know, we, this was in the 90s when there were, or in the early 2000s, when uh, the audience was full of people who were from the IRA and the UDF and, and the government stuff, and they were all in discussion in London. And in my memory, we suspended the fire regulations. People were sitting in the aisles. It was quite tense. And it ended with this long silence during a, a, a quite confrontational interrogation when someone finally admitted they had done a bombing. And, uh, and so it was a long, long silence. And a phone started to ring and it was a Nokia phone. I remember it so vividly because it was on a sending ring. It was getting louder and whoever it was in the audience didn't know it was them and it got louder. And we'd, we'd worked for two hours, this cast to get this silence, to earn that kind of big payoff. And the fucker wasn't switching it off. And when it got to like deafening, I realized it was in my pocket and I was on oh. the stage with a Nokia phone. Oh, no. And for years afterwards, if I went to the Royal Court to pick up tickets, I'd say, oh, two tickets for Isis, please. Some kid who wasn't even born would go, are you the one with the phone? Yes, it's me. Thank you very much. Just give me the tickets. Oh, wow. Anyway, that's what I did after that. I was always trying to do something different afterwards because yes. people sometimes talk about typecasting 
and there's no such thing there's type offering so if you're making a film and you want uh, a mad old man you know you might offer it to bruce dern bruce dern's played mad old man many times but that's because you just think about what you saw him do last it's up to him whether he takes the job or not so i was offered lots of uh evil villains and nazis actually i was offered a nazi and something uh, straight afterwards and i thought well let's try and find the opposite and i continually to try and do that is there anything coming up you can tell us now that you can talk about yeah 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 sure no i can talk about anything now because of the strike i've been lucky enough to do a few fabulous indie films uh, with some really creative new voices i've done a film called the salt path uh, which is based on a best-selling book called The Salt Path, which is a, essentially a two-hander with me and Gillian Anderson, uh, oh, a book which was itself a true story, and it's just a beautiful story. I'll take up another podcast when I tell you when that comes out. I did a film called uh, about called Anna, starring Maxine Peake, who's just an incredible actress, uh, about Anna Politkovskaya, who was the journalist who went to Chechnya and went, wait, Putin's lying. Putin's been lying about everything and oh, called Putin yeah. out for the gangster that he was. And then when the Chechnyans hijacked the theatre, so the theatre uh, was the only person that they would speak to because she reported on the war, honestly. She went in there to speak to them, and that was something Putin was using as a stalling tactic. When she came out, he gassed and killed everyone, including the theatre goers. Uh, and then she continued to report on and challenge him until, uh, for her pain, she was shot on his birthday. So that's starring the brilliant Maxine Peake. And, um, oh, I just did a horror film called Honey Bunch in Canada with two very young, young couple who are brilliant filmmakers, I think, and uh, um, Really creepy horror film, which I love. And what else? Oh, there's a musical in which oh I don't Oh my gosh, stay. you don't stop. <laughs> no, no, this is over the last year and a bit. Film yeah, stuff. but that Harry Grant finished over a year ago. It's a musical called Verona um, with original songs written by the guys who write for Beyonce and, uh, you know, lots of other big pop stars uh, based on the source material for Romeo and Juliet, but not the, the actual. You know how Shakespeare used to take a story and turn it into Richard III? Well, he didn't have a hump and he didn't do those things. He'd just get that for raw material and write it. So uh, the original story of Romeo and Juliet wasn't what we know. And uh, a guy called Tim Bogart, a wonderful director, has uh, written and directed this thing. I'm surrounded by these young people who could just sing your socks off. I mean, sing these original songs. And to my mind, because I've heard them a lot, they're all hits. I hope the audience is like them. It's pretty tough to do original musical and make people sing along when they don't know the songs. But uh, I think this one might do it. And there's a, a film called Heavy... Well, I'm going through everything now. A film called Heavyweight, which is, a, I thought, a brilliant script about all set backstage before someone's going to go on and fight for the heavyweight championship for all the shenanigans oh, going just the entire thing apart from when he gets out of the car all set in the terrible huge catastrophic uh inspiring drama set in the dressing room and i play a, a pretty obnoxious promoter okay there you go that's that's all that's in the can well look well, yeah, one okay. of those comes out we've got to talk again well when you're doing the rounds we'll, we'll have to talk about that because i could talk to you for ages um but look, good luck with the series you're absolutely brilliant i've seen a review in the guardian that was praising you for how brilliant you were as as Carrie Grant. Very nice. I mean, look, uh, just not not to deflect praise. I'll, I'll take as much as I can get. But Jeff Pope, who's been writing real life stories and turning them into drama for decades, and won every award under the sun for doing it. Philomena and Little Boy Blue mm. on a BAFTA, and you know, produced the the reckoning with Jimmy Savile thing and the Richard the Third thing with Steve Coogan, and uh, he's just a, a phenomenon. He wrote this because of an obsession with Cary Grant. Then he spent ten years wooing Diane Cannon and Jeff Pope. It was directed by Paul Andrew Williams, who I always want to work with. He did some things to the screenplay that just, I mean, weren't there. He swapped timelines. He put actors, you know, he put child actors in bed with the older lady and he put my young mother opposite me and he made us sometimes scream out the subtext and cut that in sublimely. He really made it much more of a non-linear experience because Cary Grant had a stroke. And so in many ways, when you're watching him 
give this audience maybe this isn't an actual audience maybe this is the fever dream of a man having a stroke and that's all paul stuff and then there's the amazing laura aikman who plays diane cannon opposite me who just I don't know, she's an actor. You, mm. you dream of someone who when you zig they zag you know and, and i'm i can go pretty off piece jeff allowed me to be an executive producer on it which gave me a bit of license to to play and laura is just a perfect dance partner she just she's alive and nimble to anything that happens on the day so all those people under you know, you've seen what I look like in other people have seen stills. The makeup department, Liz Headley and the, the How long were you in the chair for? Well, to play eight year old, I'm in there for four or five hours and then a couple of hours <laughs> taking it off. But to play the younger one, it's Blimey. a wig and a chin. I had a deep brown fake tan all the time. And someone who's hired just to put my contact lenses in every day. But then the costumes, they're all Savile Row, you know, the, these are the greatest tailors in Britain made all my suits. I don't know how there was any costume budget left because it's not a big budget thing. I didn't end up with any of the suits. They've all gone back into stock for uh, the costume <laughs> houses. But all that stuff happens in the great set around you. You don't actually, the secret is you don't actually have to do very much. You've got a really good script and really wonderful actors and a great set. And it kind of, it's a bit like surfing a wave. You get credit sure. yeah, yeah. for a whole yeah. bunch of other people's fabulous work. But I'll take it because they're not on the podcast. Yeah, absolutely, you should. Well, good luck with it. I'm sure it's going to go down very, very well. It's, it's, it is an extraordinary story, even if, we, if you don't delve deeper into who he was, even just the boy from Bristol going to be on this, this, this yeah. debonair superstar. It is quite incredible. Um, well, it's also a lesson that be careful what you wish for, because I, I, you, I'm sure you've interviewed plenty, and I know uh, a few very famous people, and that fame has never brought them happiness. It doesn't mean there aren't happy, famous people, but if you think the fame is going to bring you what you need, you're really in trouble. Thank you for your time, Jason. Much appreciated. Thanks. Lovely to talk to you. Bye. Jason Isaacs, what a cool guy. Straight talking, humble about life. Even when I tried to dish out some praise, he was... He's pretty uninterested, but always seemed to spin it off into a nice, interesting story. His voice is a unique one as well. Losing his accent, growing up in Liverpool, moving to London, then going to Bristol. He kind of showed us his, his range of uh, mimicking skills in, in the pod, but you kind of make sense how he's known for that. And that takes us nicely onto Cary Grant with that transatlantic accent of his. Amazing story. Really interesting to delve into that with Jason. You can see the attraction to the role. You, on the surface, you have this debonair superstar you know we talked about frank sinatra Cary grant could have been in the rat pack he had that look to him but behind it all you've got this chaotic traumatic double life so that's what the series archie about Cary grant delves into i'd recommend it on itvx obviously i had to mention a bit of hp harry potter the story of ray fines kind of always half being in character I'd, I'd you'd love to be behind the scenes seeing that how he's navigating the room and how he's communicating and then going into those scenes. And a bit of trivia, the Basilisk. Not only did Jason Isaacs play Lucius Malfoy, but he was also the Basilisk that Harry could hear in the Chamber of Secrets. And we followed that by talking about big movies. And Jason said the most interesting role is that of the villain, these complex and mysterious characters. You can understand the appeal to an actor. And my hope is that Jason just continues to play them because he's bloody good at it. So big thank you to Jason Isaacs. Thoroughly enjoyed that. I hope we can catch up again in the future. Oh, and by the way, if you pledge allegiance 
to Slytherin House or you're just a general Malfoy fan, there's a new podcast, Theories by T, in partnership with Sky Cinema. Terrell Charles, the host, delves into Easter eggs and nuggets, behind the scenes of films, the sort of information that even super fans wouldn't know. And the episodes this week and next are on HP, Harry Potter. Go and check it out. They're really fun. Theories by T. And in the meantime, I better start my Christmas Potterthon. So until then, ciao guys. Bye.